dimensional transforming musical linguistic objects. Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. I'm Lorenzo and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. Well, as promised, today's program is a continuation of a conversation between Terence McKenna and Ralph Abraham that took place on August 1st in 1998. And in the previous podcast, Terence and Ralph each gave their views about the World Wide Web and the Millennium, and then they opened it up for questions. Now, before I pick up on where we left off, I first want to replay a short soundbite from that program. It's one of, uh, I think, one of Terence McKenna's more poetic riffs about the Internet. And the reason I, I really want to play it right now, besides the fact that <laughs> I just love listening to it, is that for those of you who never really had an opportunity to experience Terence McKenna in person, this uh, should give you a, a little better appreciation for his uh, ability to use the English language as if it was a fine musical instrument of some kind. This is, this is clearly a bard at the top of his game. The occult dreams of Gnosticism and alchemy and hermetic thought, the idea that man, rather than being a fallen creature, could be some kind of co-partner in the enterprise of creation, that particular strain of fantasy gets an enormous shot in the arm from the rise of cyberspace, the informational technologies and the power to manipulate them, the power to steer human history toward a world of ever greater art and artifice with all the contradictions and, uh, and ambiguities that that necessarily uh, would entail. So that's my take on where we are at the millennium with the internet. And now for a counterpoint of just plain talk. I wish I had a picture of the bemused grin on Ralph Abraham's face as he he watched Terrence do his thing just then. Uh, What was truly amazing to me is that during that, that same day, it was a Saturday, Terrence had gone on like that for probably six or seven hours, you know, and all without notes. <laughs> now here he was at nine or ten o'clock at night, still rhapsodizing poetic. <laughs> what a trip he was. So, when we left them in the previous podcast, they were taking questions from the audience, and so we'll pick up uh, right now with someone from the audience asking another question. The idea of technology You'll excuse me if I use the Q word here. Uh, as a result of transportation and communication, um, we've made a huge quantum leap in the last 40, 50 years. I grew up, the telephone was there. It was always there. It would always be there. And I pick it up. It's just it's like an extension of my hand, and the TV. When I grew up, the people who used computers had uh, glasses three feet thick and the plastic pen pouch with the... Um, you know, as we, you know, we're talking about being right on the threshold of the year 2000. You know, and you know, the chicken littleism of, uh, you know, this summer it's the asteroids going to hit us or whatever's in vogue. 
I can't help but have a feeling like being aware of what we've, what, I've, what we've seen in the last 50 years and knowing that I'm going to be alive for the next 50 years and being aware of what the curve looks like to an extent. I mean, I don't spend 100% of my waking time <coughs> thinking about disaster, but I can't help but think whatever's going to happen, whatever the fate is of us as humans, that I'll see it in my lifetime. So I guess what, my, what I'd like to ask you is, could you uh, paint a picture of what the year 2000 looks like, what the year 2010, 2020... Uh, is, is it possible to... Well, 2000 is pretty easy because it's only 18 months away unless there's some enormous breakthrough. You know, it, it will not be great. Some of us are there already. More of us will catch up in the next 18 months. But when you start talking about, you know, Ralph thought the idea of downloading people into circuitry was out there a long way. Perhaps it is, perhaps it isn't. Uh, a few months ago, you may have followed this stuff out of Vienna where this guy Anton Zellinger and his research team achieved a quantum teleportation of a photon. Well, this is a technology that I would have thought was a thousand years away. In other words, I try to be the most radical and permissive thinker on the block, and I can't stay up with nature and science news. The people who did the quantum teleportation of this photon said that their analysis of the mathematics which permitted it made no distinction between a photon and an electron, and that it was simply a matter of ramping up the input energy. Well, imagine if we're uh, five years, ten years away from a technology where you flicker in and out of existence as you routinely move from your job in Amherst to your apartment in Shinjuku and back and forth on, on a daily basis. Uh, so I, th uh, when you, and you know, there's a significant portion of the physics community that is now talking about time travel, something that was just, you were just laughed off the block 15 years ago if you talked about this. Now there are numerous approaches, schemes, possibilities. Well, what if one of these things kicked in and arrived? Uh, artificial programs for uh, evolving software through Darwinian mechanisms could produce software with capacities that none of us would have ever designed toward or anticipated. In other words, there are many ways in which the process could surprise us and something could jump out. So I think once we get that, in a way, the millennium is holding the process back because the millennium is being squat on by Christian fundamentalism to some degree. It's their holiday. It's some kind of, uh, it's the millenary celebration of what? Of Western European values and Christian civilization. And once we get past it a year, two, three, and that sinks in that there isn't going to be any trump of judgment and that, uh, you know, there is no return of the second person of the Trinity and so forth. 
and that we're staring another thousand years in the face, the enthusiasm for the, the Christian right-wing agenda and some of its more repressive and uh, homophobic and racist and you know tendencies will just seem it will seem old hat. It will seem. 20th century and no one will want to be associated with something like that and so and people and you know Max Planck said of the history of physics he said it proceeds funeral by funeral and so will human progress but I think once we get past the millennium there'll be a sense of speed connectivity we got to get everybody T1 connections uh, we've got to get everybody wired in. We've uh, basic problems have to be addressed. Build down our nuclear arsenals. Clean up. Begin, you know, the obvious agenda. I don't have to tell you what it is. This all will come. We have no choice. We can delay these tasks, but we can't avoid them entirely. It's our bed we've fouled. It's our nest that we're called upon to clean up. So that's what I see. I see a little bit past the turn of the century. When you start talking 2010, 2012, uh, the, the technological acceleration and the, the, uh, un, the unexpected factor makes it impossible to predict. I mean, there could be an alien artifact. There could be a quasar ignition at the galactic core. There could be all kinds of things. And the person best qualified to foresee the year 2012 actually says he can't see it, so that's that. Meanwhile, uh, well, you hesitated, Terence. Uh, Time and Newsweek magazines had no inhibition in laying down exactly what was coming in 2010, 20, and 30, particularly 2030, their favorite year. Paper clothes and hovercraft? I think uh, they, <laughs> their, uh, their predictions, as I read them, seem like quite plausible, and they live in the world of the information they represent in their pages. And uh, I think that, okay, while you're watching, while your eye is on Monica's dress, somebody's like turning the switch on Y2K under the table or something that um, all of their current news and the stuff, the, the ball that they're watching and the predictions they're making for the next 10 or 20 and 30 years is all correct and all equally uh, irrelevant because that's nothing to do with what's really going on that we're talking about. And it's quite possible that the, the chicken little scenarios or something equivalent are actually coming along, that there will be an increase in the rate of catastrophes. And that's what all the indications are. When you say, well, we have no choice but to look after this stuff. Well, unfortunately, there is a choice, and the function of denial is such that a lot of people may just uh, sit out the moment when you're supposed to choose your chair, and the result will be irreversible damage to the environment, that there will be no fixing not all of them, the collapse of the world economy and so on, but some uh, bad things are going to happen faster than before. That's uh, my only prediction. And I am opposed to any predictions about the future due to the fact of my belief, and this is our whole subject here, I want to repeat this, uh, our belief is that we are at a millennium, a special 
a hinge of history which is more than a speed bump and therefore what we do and say matters and more than other times the future is up to grabs and when you say that you have a vision of it that uh, if that means that you're going to sit down and not work to create that vision then you're in big trouble because things are very much in a meltdown we are between the caterpillar and the butterfly and the butterfly could be an angel or a devil suppose that it actually mattered what we thought what we did, what we created, the stocks that we bought, the detergent that we bought, and every single thing that we did mattered a thousandfold more than any other times. Then it's important that we do not predict the future. We work to create the future. That is our responsibility in a millennial moment more than other moments. That's what has to happen. So don't ask about 2010. Build it. That's what we say. Right? Yes. So, more. Oh, I see one way back there. Yes. Um, Terrence's idea on uh, the AI and the emergence of that through the World Wide Web as, as a pos possible function of re you know, reaching a higher intelligence. Um, I think it was Alan Turing who created the concept of the Turing test, and mm -hmm. you can no longer tell the difference between a person sitting on another on a keyboard somewhere else writing to you or a computer program, then you've truly achieved artificial intelligence. And if that's the case, it seems as though once that initial step has been made, that it's going to be that the pace of change that we see now is going to seem like a snail's pace. Because as you mentioned, the, the, the speed with which we function and our attention span to focus on any given problem is so brief compared to that which an artificial intelligence could apply and be creating new solutions and new applications for itself and replicating and creating new programs that once that occurs, it seems as though we'll shed all these initial, all the problems and things that are seeming to be pressing immediately on us very, very rapidly. Is that well, sort of mirroring what you're seeing? Or? Yeah, I mean, Hans Moravik, who's written a lot about this and who runs the Carnegie Mellon Institute for Artificial Intelligence, he says we may not even ever know what hit us. That if the net were to become sentient, even as sentient as a flatworm, in a matter of hours, it could cover the distance from flatworm to prime, that it took us several hundred million years to cover because it evolves so rapidly and it can call down so much connectivity upon itself. You know, uh, and in no, the talk about millennial change, what's gone on in the past ten years while we've been quietly debating the internet and whether we should or shouldn't get email, if you're standing off from another planet looking at what's going on, the machines have become telepathic. Ten years ago, the machines were as connected to each other as paperweights and, and silverware around the world is connected to each other. And But we turned on the juice during the 90s and now vast amounts of information moves undetected by human minds, never seen 
by human minds. Decisions like uh, how much oil should be pumped out of the pumping stations at Abu Dhabi into the waiting freighters so that the arrival of petroleum byproducts in the Los Angeles market is such that there is neither too much or too little. The setting of the world price of gold, the world rate at which we extract bauxite and potassium and these things, these are decisions all made now by computers. When engineers want to design new computer chips, they, they give the design, the performance specifications that the contract calls for is explained to a computer and the computer architects the circuit. No human input into the actual geometry of the circuit is now necessary. So, you know, in a way, this process is happening very slowly. McLuhan, clear back in the 60s, said, we have become the genitals of our machines. We exist only to improve next year's model. And, you know, when you think about that, that, that there's a lot of that going on. Every year we improve the machines. More evolutionarily efficient machines appear on the market. Uh, and, this, you know, you've got to wonder what's going on here, folks. You've been waiting since the beginning. For me, the connection with the Internet and the whole computer scene has satisfied a strong human need for community. And that's the aspect of it that's made a difference in my life. And I think more important for all of us than the information to which we have access and the way in which we can satisfy our curiosity and the tools that we can bring to bear on something. I wondered if you wanted to talk anything about the human connection that's fostered by this whole thing. Well, I like the story of the two 12-year-olds who connected across continents. And uh, this is, I'm guessing, that the community aspect, uh, building new social worlds on the Internet, is of particular interest to people who are sort of fringing in the communities they live in, and then they seek company of fringe people elsewhere. For them, it's more value than somebody who really fits in and gets on very well with all the neighbors. This might be everyone, I don't know, but I think that there <laughs> is uh, um, that special categories of senior citizens, uh, 12-year-olds, and people with a special interest, like a special kind of fish, and all this, that suddenly these uh, communities form on a very large scale of uh, people that would otherwise never even meet. And that's because there is a way to find those people who have a better fit. And again, there's a... Uh, I'm not a very social person, so I'm not good to answer this question, but it could be, and I think many people have suggested people who are more socialized than I am that the primary function of uh, the internet was a social one so that's uh, a possibility and maybe we have been very uh, cold hearted here in looking primarily at the information stored on the disk as opposed to the human contact. On the other hand uh, this aspect of the world wide web let's say uh, Communication between two friends is maintained by email, for example. That's what I do. I've heard from, just in the past year, from old friends that I hadn't seen for 30 years because they just got email and they were able to find me. 
and I really like this aspect, but it's only slightly different from the telephone. I've made contact with old friends by email that I could have called, but I didn't. But basically it's similar. In this aspect, the social aspect of the World Wide Web, I would compare with the telephone network and the telegraph network and the ordinary postal network that you can send a postcard from the top of a mountain in Nepal and two weeks later it's delivered in Los Angeles. To me, this is amazing. And yet it goes back, the beginning of a postal service, I think, is around 4,000 years ago. So while it is very important, it's heartwarming, it may be for such reasons, human reasons, that it's uh, preserved when threatened by you know, to be killed by commerce or child pornography or something. And, uh, and that's good. But the, somehow the, the real revolutionary aspect is connecting people in a wider web than one that depends on the two-person interaction, that kind of conversation. Um, that's, just a, that's just a guess. But see, the Internet and the World Wide Web have all these aspects. A lot of people have told me that the World Wide Web is of secondary importance. It's email that really matters. You see, the Internet is the Internet. It's a matrix of computer networks, and it does it has these totally orthogonal functions, complementary functions, like email, listserv, news groups. The World Wide Web is just one among many. So you could make an argument that email is more important, is vastly more important, or news groups are more important than uh, the World Wide Web. And uh, for me, it's the World Wide Web. I don't know. I just see that as the most futuristic, different. It's characterized by this altruism. It's a new. It's really the harbinger of a completely new society. A society made based on different principles, and that's what's really exciting. Because the society we've got based on the present principles is really uh, too competitive, selfish. Uh, ignorant, destructive, and it's going downhill fast. So we want America, we want a millennium. Whether one is really happening or not, we're dreaming, we're, do, we're engaging here in uh, utopian fantasies where we're painting pictures of what could be and so on in the hopes that it is. And we're hoping for something just a step beyond a telephone revolution because um, we've had the telephone, well, it's not all that long, 140 years. cyberspace is at least practicing what it would be like without gender and I think that it's very likely that as a feedback, as a side effect of even a temporary experiment with the World Wide Web uh, would be an enormous uh, increase further in support of the, uh, the partnership transformation or Gylanic resurgence as Rihanna Eisler calls it that we have been hoping for I mean that's one just one of the things we want from a major social transformation is the equality of the genders. And uh, there's other things about competition and commercial and a million things, and they're all still possible. And uh, one thing that might be the case in the year 2002 or three is that some of them are no longer possible because uh, at the crucial instant we were watching Monica's dress.
Sounds good to me. I think maybe we should quit soon. I have a feeling of no. Well, okay. Um, you then. You. Vegging, vegging out. You know, the idea of vegging out over mash at two o'clock in the morning. I can turn on mash and kind of, and I. That's a, almost a psychological pacifier. Say, all of a sudden, go into the into the warehouse of ten years of mash at three o'clock in the morning. I come home. I click on my digital device, and now I'm confronted with an index. What year do you want? What segment do you want? And I got to go through all these choices. You know, I don't want those choices. I want to veg out. I don't want to look at 10 years. Of, I just want to sit there and do that. That seems to represent what I look at as a backlash. And that uh, Stefan and I was talking about how wonderful maybe things like Omega will be because they are a physical reality. That I see kind of a backlash coming. I don't know how it'll shape itself, but things like MASH is an example of me of a frustration that a lot of people represent. How do you? What's your thoughts on how that might unfold? You mean how to deal with those who want to veg out? Yeah. If there's going to be a war between intelligence and stupidity, I know where I'll put my money. I mean, it doesn't seem like a fair contest. Uh, the, the couch potatoes of the world will surge forward to vanquish creativity? Not. <clears throat> it, could, it could be that all, all that's uh, required for the couch potatoes is a different index than the date or the number of the, you know, you could search for the one where he drops the, drops the scalpel in the wound or something. Um, the woman with a black shirt in the next exactly. one. Exactly. Exactly. I had a question, but I wasn't going to ask it because I thought I was the only one in here wondering it. And then I asked my sister. She said, no, she was wondering it too. So who really gives a shit about the year 2000? I mean, I feel like the main effect of the year 2000 is that people get very, very tense or very, very excited or something. You know, they, they write their checks and it says 1998. They say, oh, those numbers are getting so big. Oh, my God, it's going to turn too soon. But that's only half the world to begin with. And a lot of people aren't hooked into the web and aren't going to be. And I've just come back or aren't going to be for 40 years, 50 years. Maybe the main effect of the millennium will happen in not in within 18 months, but in 2078. And by the time 4,372 of the Christian era rolls around, they'll say, yes, the third millennium actually kind of took off around, you know, the second century. Or so, I, I'm just not convinced that the year makes a difference. Well, I think we never made a case for the year, and we find the millennium or the subject that we're talking about is a big change that's happening around now that might have been going on for 100 years. And uh, it's got nothing to, to do with the year 2000, except the idea is, is not happening in the year 2078. Something is happening now. It has nothing to do with the year 2000. We are in the midst. Are we or aren't we in the midst of a big change? I say we are. I cannot prove it. This premise, that's, that's what we're talking about. And the World Wide Web is either part of the evidence or it has to do with or, or it doesn't. Well, I think you 
you put your finger on it when you said it's fun and exciting and fun to talk about, notice that if your view were to triumph, there would be no raison d'etre for having this meeting tonight. Uh, This is a form of entertainment, uh, not to be taken overly seriously. And like all entertainment, you know, it's hung on a thin peg indeed. Uh, So, uh, yes, arguably the millennium is no more important than any other date, but it's sort of like I've heard people say of the L.A. earthquake some years ago, uh, I didn't care, I would live in Paris. Well, I think you misunderstand. The reason that earthquake was more important than an earthquake happening in Turkmenistan was because so many important people were thrown out of bed. And uh, that experience was very enriching for them. So uh, uh, a lot of important people may be thrown out of bed by going over this entirely artificial and synthetic speed bump called the year 2000. But the fact that it's artificial and synthetic won't make the bruises they get by being thrown out of bed any less real. So it'll shake up the right people. That's what's good about the year 2000. And the people who are innocent won't even know it's happening. You see, we have both um, made, you know, written, devoted a book, uh, at least, to the idea that the amount of novelty in a given year varies from year to year enormously, and we've tried to make maps of these, and it's on... Uh, the, our maps are completely different, but nevertheless, there are these maps which uh, claim the opposite of what you suggest that there are, yes, there are catastrophes and big changes every year, but considering the number of the magnitude and trying to add them up on the basis of any uh, casual look through the Columbia Encyclopedia of Medieval History or whatever, you come up with uh, your own view of the variation of the amount of novelty per year or per century. And uh, it, it seems to me that there's really a lot of it now. And Terence I think he's the only one who's published a graph of novelty as a function of time on his website, and it's the least flat graph I've ever seen in my life. There's not a flat spot to be found, and we're in the midst of a gigantic tumble, according to him, into the valley of novelty, which is what he's talking about here. So we're not going to agree with you about that, but we can't, we can't agree on the map of uh, novelty in world cultural history as a function of time and we can't prove to each other, we can't prove to you we can't prove that we're right and you're wrong or anything like that it's more or less a personal impression and it seems perhaps that there is a kind of a minor consensus emerging lot, I mean how many books have been devoted to the idea that this is a time of big change at least comparable to the renaissance or the time of early Christianity or something like that uh, there's, there's a lot of books. The World Future Society, the, uh, the Futurists of America, the Urban Laszlo's book, The Bifurcation Age. I mean, there are a lot of books. There's a flood of books, and then none of them, except one I can think of by that Stephen Jay Gould, none has anything to do with the year 2000. It's just this is a time of big change with uh, technology, with world population, with the environmental problem, with the nuclear, with the pesticides, with the ozone, with, you know, that they're just count them up. It's such an enormous number. And the, the World Wide Web among them, uh, the computer revolution, 
the euro dollar. I mean, there's a lot of stuff going on, an extraordinary amount for a given time. One explanation or interpretation of this, a subjective uh, reason for this, it was suggested in one question, that time somehow is speeding up. None of us can resist this impression, and why do you think? I don't remember my father talking about this. For him, time was not speeding up. Um, my grandfather, I don't think time was speeding up for him, in spite of the fact that there was uh, technology was on a roll, definitely, in terms of airplanes and steam engines and trains and electricity and the telegraph and the telephone. There was all that. Still, there was not anywhere near the feeling of revolution that we have now. Um, we could be wrong. And uh, if we are wrong, then I would say uh, that's real bad news uh, for you young folks because you're going to have a really bad time. What we need to, is to get the train off the death track by some kind of major change. And if it's not happening by itself, we have to make it. And one way or another, it will be a millennium or it will go down from stupidity, which is inherent, implicit, and unavoidable in the human species. Just too dumb to survive. This train is bound for glory. <laughs> well, a couple more. Okay, you know, a couple more. It's you, a black dress. You know. Where's the microphone, Dave? When I first started coming to Omega about 20 years ago, I felt that I was at the dawning of a new age. I was excited. I, I felt filled with spirit. Um, I don't feel that now. As I hear you people talking about all these technological marvels and its effect, I feel it's arid somehow, and I'm not excited by it. Um, I feel um, that we've somehow passed the millennium that didn't happen 20 years ago. 1978? Yeah. It's possible that it's already over, that we missed it. <laughs> but we, we should keep trying, just in case it's not dead. Are, are you cyber literate, or are you looking at it from the outside or the inside? Let's talk next summer. <laughs> that's that's what I would say. The train hasn't left the station yet. <laughs> that same train. Say something based on from a business point of view maybe not so philosophical. I work in this industry for a living, and this is purely by chance that I fell upon this. And I find this um, very fascinating. I produce websites for very high-profile clients. And what's most fascinating from my point of view is in business, it's fascinating how companies like Procter & Gamble and Ford and GM and Continental Airlines and MetLife Insurance are the CEOs and the executives are all of a sudden looking to pre-30-year-olds for guidance. And the gap 
has gone from, you know, the stodgy Wall Street, you know, you have to be 60 to make this amount of money and be respected, to me, who's 28, got in this business three, four years ago, being incredibly respected. And these companies don't really know why they're doing it. Procter & Gamble, visionary company since 1837, possibly, doesn't know why they're making a website and is spending millions and millions of dollars. MetLife Insurance, Continental Airlines, same same thing. They don't know why they're doing it. And And it's not based on any sort of historical data. It's not based on the advertising model. None of it makes sense to them, so they're just kind of going with the flow, which is amazing. Well, we're all going with the flow. I mean, hardly anybody is resisting. Who who can resist it? It's it's. I think there's really a flow into this thing, and for a lot of businesses, it might be for no reason. I think it's great they're spending money like that. Parents were in the wrong business. Obviously. Yes, but um, could it be? I mean, uh, let me ask you. That you talk to these people. Do you think? that possibly when they look into the screen and they ask your price and they made a website and they're looking in to see what you did, that there's actually a backflow of altruism and spirituality which is coming into them, which was unexpected. <laughs> well, I had never heard that... Um, <laughs> no, I had never heard the word internet and spirituality in the same sentence until I came here. And this has been, uh, it'll be great for me to go back to the office on Monday and say, hey, I met these great guys and I saw this great thing. It's going to be wild for me to even say one thing that came out of your mouth in a meeting. But um, I don't, like I said before, I, I don't, I think I'm very naive in this industry and maybe everyone in this room is naive to what the internet can and will be, but it's, it's just, it's going to be amazing. And I can't really answer your question. Unfortunately, because I don't. Well, we'll be on the lookout, and we're going to talk next summer. Okay, because it's, it's a possibility. I'm glad just by suggesting it, as a matter of fact, might make it true, even though it wasn't going to be true. But now that we've discussed it, that's it. They're done Can we for. It? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> it could be. Yeah. I mean, why do placebos work so well? Just think that over. Is this paranormal or what? I mean, placebos are, give me the placebo. Cure more disease than any other drug in placebo. history. Placebo.com. Have you got that yet? <laughs> you, you try that out. <laughs> okay, and I'm scanning around. There in the back row in a red shirt. Thank you. Um, just about the fact that we are going through a major, major, major change that is not one that happens every day or anything or any century or any millennium. No, we are going through a major, major shift that is like a major cycle of 26,000 years. And so it's the night. So yes, time is precipitating and we're going through the photon and through darkness and through cleansing and it is a major, major cleansing for planetary, for the earth and ourselves, the consciousness, the awareness. And the self-destruction that patriarchy is accountable for and the shakiness still about it, the lack of projects and vision. And we are 
you know, Omega, the, we are Pluto and Leo. We, we were the ones that wanted self-growth and self-development for everybody. And now we have Pluto in Sag, and we have to visualize, you know. We have to build the vision. That's the opportunity of the major cleansing for the planet that it's going through. And it's, it, we are killing everything. I mean, it can't be more absurd. So the vision has to be worldwide web you know it has to be updated to this technology but with all the knowledge of the 26,000 years you know of the, all the wide perspective all the recovering of history and, and power self-empowerment you know just I think that's what's going on uh, well that's great that I forgot about it but that should have uh, come up at some point that besides everything else the stars are very much in favor of this uh, interpretation of this moment as special and uh, many people um, I know in the scientific religion don't believe in astrology and consider it a humbug but according to the magazines when they take uh, Polls, there's something like uh, 80% of people who do take their natal chart seriously. So, if you can give any credence to astrology, well, so just for example, among the uh, the indicators, then um, it's a huge argument in favor of time having structure of. Uh, world cultural evolution being more or less in resonance with an uh, overarching space-time pattern and, and, and so on. And uh, if there is such a thing as a space-time pattern to events, then it's greatly in our interest to know what it is or to have at least a vague idea uh, what it is in order to choose our best strategy in dealing with uh, the chicken little demons which are, which are real. So if, uh, I mean, harmonic convergence was another thing of this sort where people were very skeptical. On the other hand, an amazing number of people did turn out. There was, I think quite recently, there was a call by uh, email to meditate at a certain time on a certain day uh, that was maybe astrologically chosen. Do you remember? It was just a month or two ago. What? But how long ago was that? It was pretty recently. And a month or two. Yeah, just a month or two ago. So could it be that a lot of people thinking the same thing at the same time, let us say a responsible vision for the future, then the fact that they were like sort of in tune, that there was a convergence of the dream, gave more power for the realization, as the Maharishi Mahesh Yogi says in the so-called Maharishi effect, the 10,000 people saying, well, if 10,000 people can reduce the crime rate in Providence, Rhode Island, I guess uh, 30 million web-browsing individuals worldwide uh, on the sharing the same vision could probably pacify the whole of the Middle East. So it is uh, important what fantasies for the future you have and in what way and how much you communicate with uh, other people about them and that's I think kind of what we're doing here and I think that what we've seen here is a larger consensus as it were than I had expected 
um, feeling as I do an, an alien in a strange land coming from California to New York State and uh, not knowing exactly what uh, worldview to expect. I think that I'm we have an amazing consensus uh, here about the speciality of the moment and the challenge to us and the necessity to dream up a good future and do something at least to communicate with people in order, uh, in the hopes of uh, materializing such a thing. Sounds good to me. And <laughs> so that's what we've evolved uh, toward in an hour and a half or so of discussion all together in this town meeting on the World Wide Web and the Millennium. We uh, have more, I think, is this right, that we have kind of more of a consensus about the Millennium than we do uh, about the World Wide Web. that going when everybody's kind of off doing their own thing on the at their own computers in the isolation how do, oops, how do we how do we keep that community in the flesh going at the same time um, I found that uh, email conversations work much better after you've met once or maybe more than once it just works better and it never works as well as talking together, but there's so many people we're going to talk to that we can never meet. And the challenge is how well can you get into relationship with someone that you haven't met uh, through through the, the Internet alone. So uh, email is, is very text-oriented, not of necessity, but just that's the habit that's built around email, whereas worldwide websites have a tendency to go multimedia right away at the start. And uh, my hope is that the video telephone, video conferencing, or just the video, video telephone for two friends to have contact over long distance, uh, maintaining a relationship over a long time, that the video telephone is much better than the telephone. The telephone is much better than email. The video telephone is much better than the telephone. And making some kind of a compromise between video telephone and a worldwide website is, uh, is a possibility. This is the murder. I mean, there's a convergence of all these communications means. And I, I think that this is, this is something that we very much want from the Internet in the future is improval, improvement in the quality of the actual communication, which is sort of the bandwidth of the channel with, with colors, with smells, with uh, video, and, and so on, so that the contact is more effective. We'll never replace meeting in person, but meeting in person has become less and less frequent as you grow older and you don't want to fly or your budget is restricted or, or something. And uh, I think we have to improve the telephone, essentially. We have to improve one-to-one -one contact on the Internet until it gets as close as it can be, 10% or whatever, of face-to-face -face contact or a hot tub immersion or something.
recognition or go um, I, I think uh, personally I'm fading fast to the point that I'm not sure there's a consensus on this or, or, or not you show no sign of fading fast no. <laughs> um, so I, I personally I think we should uh, close on the basis of lack of energy and with respect to tomorrow's uh, complicated agenda and I want to thank you so much for your excellent uh, sharing I hope you were able to pick up on what Ralph was saying there about not trying to predict the future but to create it instead. And what an image he created of our species being at a point somewhere between the caterpillar and the butterfly. You know, if you've got a, a few minutes right now, it really might be worth your time to go back and re-listen to that part where Ralph is urging us all to to just sort of imagine, just imagine what what if everything we do right now matters a thousand times more than it would matter in, in ordinary times. Just imagine that. What if, if every single action you and I take each day has a thousand times more import than uh, would be the case in normal times? And actually, I think probably most of you already know that these are no ordinary times. And once you really grok that fact, my bet is that your life is going to become more impeccable each day. And before you know it, the way forward for you is probably going to be quite clear. So press on. As we just heard Terrence say, you know, this train is bound for glory. Or uh, <laughs> or maybe not, you know. <laughs> I think it's really important uh, for us all to keep in mind that, you know, we could also be completely wrong about all this stuff. <laughs> you know, in the end, the joke could really be on us. But, <laughs> hey, does that really matter? You know, the, the bottom line, I think, is that uh, you've either got to make your own plan or follow someone else's plan. And personally, I prefer to take chances with my own plan. My plan, of course, is based on a view of the world, how I see it works, that uh, I think probably is most likely similar to the way you see the world work. I'll tell you this for sure, you'll probably have a lot more fun in this life as part of the tribe than <laughs> you will as a, another cog in the big corporate machine, but hey, it's your life, you know? Take charge, live it consciously. What have you got better to do, huh? Well, once again, it's time to go, and I want to thank Ralph and Terrence for all they've done for the tribe and all they really continue to do through their books and tapes like these. And Thank you, too, to Jacques Cordell and Wells of Chateau Hayuk for the use of their music here in the Psychedelic Salon. And a big thank you to all of you out there in cyberspace who are joining us here in the Psychedelic Salon. It's nice to know you're there. For now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends.